Hey everybody, welcome to our online service. I'm excited today because we are going to begin a series in one of my favorite letters in the New Testament. Now we just finished a massive journey through the book of Revelation a few weeks ago that took us 28 weeks. And for those of you who stuck with us through that entire journey, hats off to you. And I'm sure there, there is and there will continue to be great benefit, benefit from investing your time uh, in the reading and the study of the book of, of Revelations. But this morning, we're going to start a seven-week journey, so slightly shorter journey than our last one, through the book of the letter to the Philippians. Uh, we've titled this series Inversion because the, the call of this book is to completely change the way we look at our rights and what we deserve. Uh, in a self-serving world, we are called to humility. We are called to uh, what is called in scripture, kenosis, an, an emptying of ourselves. We'll unpack that word a little bit through this series. Uh, if you've not yet had time to do your daily Bible reading uh, today, you will be happy because we are actually going to read the entire text of Philippians today, which is a great reminder to us. One of the, one of the first things I want to point out to us as we look at the book of Philippians is that letters like this and really the majority of the New Testament was written to the early church, and therefore it was meant to be read by the ecclesia, the gathered community of Christ followers, the gathered church. Philippians is a letter of, of contrast, and it, it's important for us to know that the things that might hit us and challenge us in this letter were a challenge for those who read it in the first century. The challenges maybe look different, manifest themselves in different ways, but they were really quite similar to the challenges that you and I face in a secular world, a world that lives as if God does not exist. And, and what we see is, is all there is. The letter to the Philippians was written by Paul, who at one point was named Saul. Most of you will remember that Paul was a first century missionary. Not only that, but his, his Christian origin story is miraculous. He originally was a killer of Christians with permission from the government and Jewish leaders of his day. He traveled throughout uh, the Judea in an attempt to snuff out all those who he believed to be heretical uh, Christians, a sect, uh, an, an errant sect of Judaism. And he had permits and permission to go uh, on mission and, and kill those and stop those who were disillusioned, misguided followers of Yeshua, Jesus. Paul was a proud man and he had reason to be. He had credentials. He was a pure Jew. He knew Hebrew, Hebrew scripture. He spoke Hebrew, kept Sabbath. He was a zealous and passionate for God. If there was a, a poster child for the ultimate religious Jew, he would be on that poster. He was untouchable. And so it made sense to him to fight to keep Judaism clear of being tainted at all costs. And it made sense to the leaders of the day to have him do it. He was the right guy for the job. Until one day, Paul had been given permission to travel to Damascus, where Christians were getting out of hand. And we read in, in Acts 9 this, this frightfully yet beautiful transformation in Paul. He's knocked off his horse by a brilliant display of light in Acts 9, 4 to 6. And, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are, you, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And soon after this event, he's, he's, he's declaring Christ as Lord to everyone he used to represent in his persecution of Christians. And what happens is that the Jews that then cannot shut Paul up about Jesus, the very machine that they had created to snuff out followers of Jesus was now being used to declare Jesus as the Messiah to religious Jews. In verses 20 to 21 of Acts 9, it says, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, Jesus is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed 
and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Paul sees it as his mission to convince Jews of the truth of Jesus as the greatest display of Yahweh, the God they all grew up to love and pursue, but could never imagine would ever lower himself to humanity in the form of man. While Paul's zeal, now with the aim of telling everyone who would listen to him about Jesus, got him into trouble, not just with the Jewish leaders, but also with Rome and all her emperors. To proclaim that Jesus alone is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, to say that he was the Christ, was a massive slap in the face to all Roman leaders who worked very hard to convince their subjects that they were to be thought of as divine. And to top it, Paul proclaimed the foundational message of the gospel that Jesus proved his authority by his resurrection a miracle that many emperors boasted they could perform, but only Jesus accomplished, a fact that, that Paul made very clear over and over. Well, one of Paul's journeys brought him to the town of Philippi, which would be in modern-day Greece. Philippi was a, a city of special significance in that it was considered a mini-Rome. They, they, they took on the customs, the clothing, the culture of Rome, and with that came a certain pride a sense that they were different and better than other towns. The idea of being humble, humble in Philippi was a foreign concept and actually considered a negative characteristic. You deserve to be treated better than others and you needed to fight to keep your position. And much like today, when it comes to politics and societal engagement, those in Philippi were encouraged to take the entire package of Rome, the worship of false gods, the worship of the empire, self-promotion. We read of Paul's first engagement with the town of Philippi in Acts chapter 16, where he tells uh, Lydia, a successful businesswoman, about Jesus, and she comes to follow Jesus. Paul welcomes a young, a young girl into the kingdom, a, a young possessed slave girl once, telling fortunes and making money for her masters. Well, this gets Paul in, and his buddy Silas thrown into prison and causes trouble in the town. And while they're in prison, they end up witnessing to all the prisoners and the jailer through hymns and prayers in a, in a filthy, dark prison. And then after an earthquake comes and all the doors pop open, the jailer is ready to kill himself, which also tells us something about the level of shame in this culture. But when he realizes that all the prisoners are still there, he asks Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And he, he and his household come to follow Jesus as well. So that's, that's a really quick version of the birth of the church in Philippi. I would encourage you to read Acts chapter 16 as a, as a background to the series. But by the end of the chapter, we have seen a church birthed and established by the faithful witness of Paul and his friend Silas. It is the, the church that Paul and his other friend and helper Timothy writes this letter. So it's conceivable that when the church, uh, when this letter is read in a small church in Philippi, there is a burly jailer, once a powerful arm of the Roman law, sitting next to an ex-slave girl, sitting next to a successful businesswoman, a community that would not be formed in any other scenario in the Roman world other than through the unifying name of Jesus, and a community that was really an affront to the self-promoting, idol-worshiping community that surrounded them. And today, 
in a society so quick to be divided, it's an, idea, it's an ideal to be emulated as a community of light, shining like stars, Paul says in this letter, showing the world that there can be unity in spite of disagreement. There can be love and community, even with those we disagree with in many areas of life. And so Paul sits most likely in a prison in Rome, not a nice place, where he was not offered opportunity to finish his education or play basketball or lift weights in the jail yard or, or get three meals a day. While he's in chains, he preaches about Jesus. He writes a letter of encouragement to this church. Now, if I was writing a letter, it would probably say something like, get me out of here, love brat. But Paul's letter has nothing to do with his needs other than to say he doesn't have any. But just before we read this letter in its entirety, there are a few things I want you to be on the lookout for in Paul's letter. First is, Paul is saying this, humility is the surprising path to joy and peace. So he would ask, are you struggling with feelings of injustice and anger and fear? Because those aren't quite the fruits of the Spirit. Paul tells us that humility is the way to find joy and peace in a world that will never be balanced, will never be without conflict with others and yourself. Humility is the path to joy and peace. Now, this, is a, this is difficult in a culture that asks the world to turn towards the individual and affirm every decision they make in order for them to find peace and joy because that is the opposite of humility. Secondly, Paul would say humility is ultimately modeled in Christ, and you will see this in chapter 2 of Philippians. Paul calls his readers and you and I to look at Jesus, who with all the reasons not to live out humility, gave up everything, emptied himself to establish peace and deliver joy to those who will follow his path. Thirdly, Paul would say this, humility grows as we find ourselves in Christ. The phrase in Christ is the most common way Paul describes what it means to belong to Jesus. The word Christian is used only three times in the New Testament, and it was always derogatory. It was a word to refer to those who were Christ followers and refused to bow to the emperor. The phrase in Christ or in him referring to Jesus is a way of describing what it means to be in relationship with Jesus. It's used over 97 times in the New Testament. And it's important to remember that the phrase in Christ is not just a title, it's a declaration of what Jesus has done for, for you and, and where your life, your past, your present, your future reside, where your relationship with the Father resides, where your forgiveness and salvation and security reside. It's in Christ. There's a lot packed into that phrase. And Paul wants us to make room, not just make room, reorient everything in the room around Jesus in our understanding of who we are and what makes us tick so that anger and, and anxiety or, or fear do not get the center. Paul wants us to invite God to do some spiritual surgery to remove those things from the center, pride and control and position and recognition to find our center, our life, our joy, our peace in the only place they cannot be taken from us, in Christ. So guys, those are some of the themes and the things we're gonna unpack over the next two months as we look at this letter together. But right now, I'm gonna have my wife, Lelania, read the letter in its totality. As it would have been read probably several times in the church in Philippi. And maybe you want to imagine yourself next to Lydia or the jailer or the young girl who had been freed from servanthood, both spiritual and, spiritually and physically, and the many others who made up the small church in Philippi. A letter to the church in Philippi. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, 
to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision, the Spirit of Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God." For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, 
since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the skies, as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and should rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proven himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you have heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him to you, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, 
He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take a hold of that for which Christ Jesus took a hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yudia and I plead with Sintiche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out to Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have had more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and the Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings, and all God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.